this evening's talk is the psychology of freedom. Sometimes we have been given uh, different messages about freedom, about the nature of freedom in life. And one of the very strong messages that we receive is the importance of economic freedom. And we have, in a way, been indoctrinated into an idea which says to us that we can only know freedom if economically we are free, that we are financially very secure and independent. And it seems that sometimes we are driven by circumstances to find ways to try to be financially free economically independent but it seems that there is no end <coughs> to this need to this drive and there is no measure of money of what indicates or shows independence in financial terms and some some of us here and elsewhere have questioned this kind of pressure and indoctrination and how somewhere contentment and peace of mind with what is and with what we have seems quite vital since in our society we are privileged to enough to know that we will have a roof over our head at night we will have food and clothing, we do have access to uh, medicine and our basic needs are, are taken care of. And sometimes we have been told too and how we can be very unfree owing to the psychological or the personal or the emotional state which we are in. And there is coming about in recent years a growing recognition that no matter how much freedom we have outwardly to do the work that we want to do, to have the holidays where we want to have the holidays, to spend our social and leisure time in the way that we want, to have our apartment, our home with the furnishings which we appreciate, no, mat no matter how much of those outer freedoms that we have and which are the, the product of uh, infinite economic growth, it doesn't mean too much to us if inside we're not happy. So, what has happened in the last 10 or 20 years or so 
there has been like a small army, one might say, of health workers, body workers, mind workers, meditation teachers, psychotherapists, gurus, all manner of people who in some way or other are offering the opportunity for psychological health and emotional health. And rather, in a way, rather tragically, it seems to me, is that there are often, it seems, almost only two alternatives which take place among the variety of health workers, spiritual health workers and uh, psychological, emotional body health workers. One is that the persons who are working for health of being spend some time with that person, that therapist, or in that retreat. And very easily we are in the circumstance of just, as it were, sending those people, that means you, up, back into the system, into the society which contributed to the pain, the anguish, the frustration, the unhappiness, the compulsions, the obsessions. And sometimes with others, the message which we hear is don't go back into the society. Don't keep out of the system. And this produces numerous cults, numerous different sects who withdraw from the world. Some in America, I hear these days, are now going to live underground with underground toilets to go with it. And this, <laughs> and this is such a... And this isolationist <laughs> viewpoint which accompanies it. And it seems sometimes we're in exploration. There's pushing of people back into the circumstances which have contributed to the dissatisfaction or the pulling of people out of it and it forms into these numerous thousands of cliques and cults and all the damage that can come to people through them. When we look at ourselves and our exploration of ourselves during these days, quite understandably, much of the content of what takes place is dealing with the events of the personality structure and particularly, of course, giving attention to the difficult and painful aspects of the personality structure. So what we experience here is different formations of that structure taking place. And those formations, of course, may well change from one day to the next. Sometimes we can describe them as and generally in the tradition, spiritual tradition, Buddhist tradition, there are six kinds of expressions of it. One of them is greed. Greed or selfishness, the wanting mind. The mind which wants more than what we really need. What they call in the Buddhist language called desire. That is, the wanting for more than what's necessary. 
and how when we go too far in uh, wanting, how very easily it contributes to suffering both oneself and globally as well. Another expression which we deal and face with in terms of the personality structure is the force, the movement of aggression, of the anger which arises. And sometimes when we look and check in with ourselves, we see that it's very much related to wanting, to greed, to selfishness. Or, and sometimes we notice with the anger, and we check in with what's going on when I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling ag aggressive. Sometimes what we notice with ourselves is that there is something which I want and I can't get. And, and I want this, whatever it is, and because it's not there for me, there's this explosive pressure which builds up, or this constant irritation taking place. And there's some kind of refusal inside of us to recognise that we can't necessarily succeed, as I was speaking the night before last. We can't necessarily get that which we want. And our maturity in life and our uh, understanding in life is very much tested in those moments when wanting and not achieving. And the other areas too which we face and we deal with at the personality structure level and the dissatisfaction is that the tiredness and the drowsiness, the agitation, the restlessness, the anxiety, the, the fears that arise, the doubts that arise, and these forms of experience which we have to deal with and face with seem to either, seem rather easily to inhibit the sense of freedom. And as I say, whole army of workers employed to help deal with these varying states of mind. So what very easily happens when we come into a situation like this, the view can be, I am here to work on my stuff. Work on these congestions of in, my, in myself. Help work out my problems. When we view exclusively in that way, then basically we're viewing the situation almost purely as a form of psychotherapy. And I sometimes commented that perhaps the Buddha was the original uh, group psychotherapist because he actively and very directly addressed the issues of difficulties and problems in human experience and he taught ways to work with these very, very directly. And that is what we know and understand from group therapy and individual therapy. When we are engaged in that, as we are in, engaged in that here, very easily what occurs is, in a way, the desire to make oneself perfect. To make oneself perfect is or having purity of mind which is another way of looking at it is one in which one's 
in, in the looking at one's psychology, one is looking at it to try to be free from all that which one doesn't like in oneself. This is a huge undertaking. <laughs> one hasn't found any human being on earth who seems to have be free from all the unsatisfactory things of the mind. Even all these wonderful gurus and Zen masters and, and Rinpoche's and so forth. One only has to have a little contact and just keep one's ears open just for a few <laughs> minutes. It doesn't take too long. To realise that these are not the most perfect, <laughs> mindful, wise, loving, compassionate human beings and some of them are positively neurotic. <laughs> so one finds it difficult in this world to actually find a human being and I haven't yet found so but anyway, find a human being who appears to be totally free from unsatisfactory states of psychology. And it tends to show itself in various actions of body, speech and mind. And I think that itself is not disheartening. Oh my God, it's impossible. I think that's incredibly liberating. <laughs> it's an immense comfort to know that in this world there is no perfection. It can save one from an immense amount of effort <laughs> <laughs> and constant struggle and allow oneself to be fully and truly human. So then we say, but then where does one stop? What, 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 how does one know where to stop? In other, in other words, if one is suffering inside and this army of workers say, this suffering inside can stop, it can be arrested, it can be finished with, where, where in that process does one say, well, I can't be perfect because... I can't find anybody else who is perfect, so why should I be any different from anybody? If I can't be perfect, and yet I can't feel complete satisfaction in feeling my imperfection. I begin to see the futility of trying to be a perfect human being, totally pure, totally wise, totally clear, totally enlightened, totally this. And yet, when I experience my sense of imperfection, my lack of understanding, my lack of realisation, I can't feel quite satisfied with that either. And sometimes we have real issues on our hands. Striving to be perfect seems completely futile, but standing still in life seems like a state of resignation. and spiritual life 
does again and again, I think, reveal to us these paradoxes which we have to live with. Sometimes, here, and a number of people have expressed this today and uh, yesterday, very few on the first day, but the second, third day, is some feeling of peacefulness and some feeling of calmness at times, in moments, mustn't get too ambitious, during the course of the day. Sometimes the calmness only comes when one is finally free from this room <laughs> and, and one walks out of the room and one feels calm for the first time in the day until the thought arises about 40 minutes later that one's got to come back into this hell realm and look at the knees. So sometimes the moments of calmness are short-lived and, and in the calmness there is a slight element of relief from the old. There's some feeling of calmness. Sometimes the calmness is even miraculously to be found in here as well. And one feels some moments of calm here and outdoors. So in those moments, the pressing problems of the psychology, the obsessions, the preoccupations, the passions, the aggressions, all of that is not present. It would simply be, I would say, from Dharma standpoint, teaching standpoint, a speculation for a person to say, ah, oh, I'm just calm now, but there's really so much stuff inside of me just waiting to come up. This view easily comes when there's a state of calmness. And so one then begins to undermine, to detonate the calmness. Oh, it's not going to last, it's just going to go away, it never stays, it's just going to finish, and I'll be, be back to my neurotic self. <laughs> so these thoughts come in with incredible frequency. So within a few minutes, one is feeling back to being completely neurotic, and think, ah, oh, right, this is... <laughs> <laughs> this is the familiar story. <laughs> so, so sometimes we prefer this state. Then the mind is, gets totally exhausted with being neurotic. And once again, after a while, the calmness and the quietness begins to come back in again. With the calmness and quietness, when there's some presence of that, Naturally, and I say naturally, naturally and uh, organically in the nature of things, one wishes, of course, for some continuity of the calmness. And one wishes that this calmness stays with one so that when one goes into other situations in the world that we live in, there will be some sense, some feeling some relationship to the calmness, that there will be some power in the calmness for it to stay. 
And very easily our mind can get the view that meditation is only about calmness. That meditation, the purpose of meditation is to reduce non-calmness, to reduce selfishness and greed and boredom and tiredness and anxiety and fears and doubt, to reduce the level of those unsatisfactory states of our psychology and to experience for longer periods of time the continuity of calmness. And then that continuity of calmness becomes the reason for the meditation. And one might say that people who have uh, explored meditation and looked into themselves at insight meditation in the various forms of looking into oneself do report that generally there is more calmness uh, in their life and equally there is more wish and willingness to look into the non-calmness. To experience, when we are experiencing pain and difficulty and frustration and anxiety, to take a real interest in that because we know we can appreciate what calmness is. Still there's a polarity there. Still there is I am like this, calm, or I'm not calm. We have a value for one over the other. But I would say, just to be satisfied with a calm mind doesn't pay enough respect to us as a human being. (coughs) So whereas in some schools of psychology or psychotherapy the express purpose of it is to bring the person very beautifully and significantly to a state of psychological health in which the person is not suffering from the circumstances of his or her life. You might say much school of psychotherapy is towards that. But in spiritual life that sense or degree of some psychological health in life, a general sense of well-being in life and calmness in life, at that point, spirituality actually begins. It's then that it's then the work actually starts. So then a person may say, think, when the person hears this, oh my God, if there is one, oh my God, maybe I'm just working at the psychological level. All that I do with all this meditation is only around my state of mind, my state of body, and if it's agitated on the one side or if it's calm on the other. And we have to be honest with ourselves. Is or shall we say, are our meditations just about our state of mind? We have to be very honest with ourselves. If so, the meditation is being used as 
a vehicle for therapy. And there's a long-standing tradition, especially in insight meditation, and inspired by the Buddha and Dharma teachings, to use it this way. No question about that. But, <coughs> what I would say is that in the frame of a person, of one human being, no matter how much pain or unsatisfactoriness one may experience, at times there is pain and unsatisfactoriness, at times there is the calmness and certain contentment and satisfaction uh, moments of that in the meditative atmosphere, such as here, but at that time when you're experiencing calmness, then there is an opportunity to begin to sense something other than calmness. When that sense for something other than that state of mind begins to occur, then I call this the, 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 the intimations of spiritual life. So, it's not a progressive path. It's not, that I'm not saying, first of all, work on the selfishness, work on the greed, work on the aggression, work on the fear and doubt. Then, second, become a psychologically and emotionally um, calm, healthy person and then from there go to the sense of something other than just calmness. Because if that's the case then perhaps we will never taste of anything other. So I say in the human being when we're experiencing calmness we don't have to concern ourselves whether there is anything inside of oneself or not. Because when one is sitting or walking and feeling calm, you close your eyes and you can look inside and say, well, it's nice and quiet down there and nothing is going on, what, what, whatever. So why should one conclude, oh, well, it's got to be hidden in there somewhere, maybe it's under my armpit or it's uh, <laughs> down in my genitals or... Um, in my big toe or something. So at times when we are looking and we can look inside and all around and we won't find any agitation, we won't find any complaint about the world, we won't feel miserable and upset with the way other people are ruining our planet or whatever. It is. It's actually, it's the system, the form and the sensation and the state of mind is all very calm. And it's too far to say, well, it's got to be in there somewhere, because it's just a view and opinion, which can't, in those moments, be confirmed with experience. In when one is calm, the view and opinion is all this stuff inside me, can't be confirmed in that moment through experience. Therefore, it's truly just an idea that's popped up. So when we speak of unsatisfactory states of mind it's not my stuff inside of me waiting to come up like a rocket but unsatisfactory states of mind occur when the conditions are them to occur are there to occur 
when the conditions are there to occur, they occur, and when the conditions are not there, they don't occur. It's not like something is waiting around, like a, like a, a monster, <coughs> just waiting to get one's consciousness and make one miserable. Because there's no evidence for it. It, if the conditions are there, it occurs, and if there aren't those conditions, then it does not occur. So when we begin to look at calmness and non-calmness, this I, this me that arises, has the tendency, and it's only an idea, this me, this I, to take ownership and say, I am calm and I've got to get rid of this, or get rid of this agitation. I have all this stuff inside of me. And this view we get truly identified with. Instead of seeing process, things arising because of conditions, we see in personal terms. We see in self terms. So look, when you walk into the meditation room, this proof shows this every day. You walk into the meditation room, and perhaps in the previous meditation room, perhaps it's been a complete nightmare. You wish you'd never heard of meditation. You wish you'd never heard of your knees, your back, or whatever. And it's just horrendous. And then one goes out, does some walking for 45 minutes, walks back in here, sits down, completely expecting that the nightmare will be reborn again. And one sits down and it's quiet. Nothing's happening. And one does, well, I don't, what happened? Last 45 minutes I was out there walking, I was um, doing my uh, circumambulation around the teapot in there and, um, and, and um, brushing my teeth a, a few extra times to fill in the time and all, the, all these things are going on and all of it was avoidance and then I walked back in here and I just expected the misery to go on and it's calm. So when the eye has these expectations and, and views, but it's calm because the conditions were not there. And it was agitated before because the conditions were there for the agitation. And the wonderful thing is in this world that the world is, like the Buddha said, is both gross and subtle. Gross gross, not in a judgmental way, gross means large here. Large and sometimes we have to make quite large changes in our life to really change our inner life. We have to make major decisions, gross decisions, major decisions in our life to make changes. But equally, making a small change in our life, a subtle, subtle change, can change everything. And so it's long been recognized and 
spiritual awarenesses and in the intimacies with life just to lift one's hand and move it through the air just a few centimeters influences and affects the entire universe everything is altered through one movement everything changes in the whole universe through one movement and sometimes some of us have noticed in our life a slight change of just the posture just a one half centimeter from one to another has altered everything throughout the whole being and all the atmosphere which is around just through one subtle little centimeter of a, a change so sometimes major changes in our life make all the difference and sometimes the most refined subtle subtle movement changes everything because it's changed the conditions and in the changing of the conditions the whole universe is changed to fit it everything so profoundly and in a mystical way so interrelated and interdependent so our actions here this evening influence in the affecting circumstances as far as our mind can reach so when we're speaking here of change gross and subtle, large and, and small speaking in, in ways in which just tiny things make the world of difference still exploring here and moving here between the calm and the agitation so what, hap what does it mean to begin to sense something other when there is some state of calmness in, in the state of calmness and quietitude what I'm saying there is that the personality structure the state of one's mind the state of the personality it doesn't really matter the calmness in those moments means that we don't have to try to make the calm stronger we don't have to try to make it deeper we don't have to try to hang on to the calmness when we start to do that the calmness is going to go just like that because we're bringing in the self it says I want this I want to keep this I want more of this and every uh, arising of the self eats up the calmness so if there's a sense of calmness there experiencing calmness then say we could open out our attention our field of awareness a little bit further expand it out a little bit further and begin to sense something not of personality not of me not of myself not of my life and my roles and my personal relationships and my career <coughs> and my studies and my mind and my staff whatever so there can be just an opening out to a sense of something which is not coloured by self not of self-interest not connected to the formation of I and my and self and, so that, and that begins to give the information of something not of me 
And don't think calmness is a very lovely and delightful state of human experience. It's really nothing in itself, has no special merit of itself. But it's the opportunity with the quietitude and with the calmness to, be, to allow and sometimes to wait and sometimes to be rather patient as well to allow for the sense and the intimation of something which is greater than oneself to be touched by that to be receptive to it I think in our support for each other here in the interconnectedness of meditations and awarenesses in the mindfulnesses of the moment and each time both in the interviews in the one-to-ones in the inquiry sessions in the evening what we're saying here again and again let's keep in touch with what with what actually is with what is if the experience in the moment is unsatisfactory and is painful let's not deny that let's say let's be true to the facts let's face that so when you say uh, Christopher um, I am experiencing this this is what is occurring for me right let's talk about that let's go into that and if there are times when there's calmness, right, let's be aware of the calmness. Let's have some space around the calmness so we can begin to sense something other. So constantly giving direct care and attention to what actually is, but always pointing to something beyond self, beyond me, which embraces me, embraces self. And, and and therefore the liberation and transcendence are the themes of these explorations and the intimations of that remember in the moment when you're working with unsatisfactoriness when you're working with suffering and pain the very interest to work with it is because one wishes to transcend it one wishes to be free one has a sense an intimate intimate sense and hopefully conviction there is something beyond this suffering, this unsatisfactoriness and even if you stayed with the calmness and you experienced a great deal of calmness I still say that some unsatisfactoriness will come through that calmness because one will still say there is something that transcends the calmness and mystical teachings spiritual teachings of liberation and awakening have pointed out towards that which is beyond state of mind which embraces state of mind so let's be very respectful to our experiences let's explore the dimensions of those ex experiences let's, let's, let's really listen in within ourselves what's really occurring and what's being pointed out every time we're looking into something every time we're engaged in exploration and let's remember too that just the slightest movement or the slightest 
non-movement changes the whole web of life, the whole huge expanse of it, just by one single movement. May all beings be in touch with life. May all beings explore the psychology of things. May all beings taste of freedom. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.